normally when we take up an exposition of a, a new book of Scripture, I, I like to begin with a sermon which provides a sort of overview of the, of the book as a whole. And the reason why we made a beeline for chapter 3 is because I wanted to preach to this congregation about offices and officers and their great qualifications. And so we spent a great deal of time expounding uh, those topics in 1 Timothy chapter 3, and then we conclude our exposition of that great chapter by noticing that the Apostle Paul, as he winds down to conclusion in chapter 3, well, he, he finishes with an exposition and a proclamation of something that we might just call the regulative principle. Remember how the text of that particular concluding portion begins. He says these things. And we said that if you're to take those, uh, that phrase, these things, and begin to analyze it within its context, it would reach back at least to the beginning of chapter 3, which means that everything that falls under the heading of these things would at least include offices and officers and their qualifications. And so we could say that in that portion of 1 Timothy chapter 3, we have a regulative principle of church government. But you know, then we said, but wait a second, we should think more broadly than that. We have warrant to reach all the way back into the beginning of chapter 2, where the Apostle Paul begins to teach and exhort Timothy about about worship and about prayer as the people of God assembled together and how they ought to conduct themselves in the house of God. So we said, wait a second, there's an enlarging of the regulative principle here. It not only includes how we regulate ourselves in our form of government and the practice of our government, but it also applies to our worship. The more I began thinking about that, though, I said, why not uh, take all of that in But before we take all of that in, step back to the very beginning of this letter to see the wider and the broader context of of Paul's instructions to Timothy. And so that means then, instead of going back to chapter 2 to think about that regulative principle of prayer and worship, that really where we should start, and probably where we should have started from the beginning, is is chapter 1, verse 1 and begin to evaluate the, the context of Paul's words to Timothy about this regulative principle in light of Paul's exhortations to Timothy in general. You begin to do that, you begin to see some interesting insights. We don't need this morning to spend time in overview and introduction as we normally would do, because we have some sense already of some of the issues and the dynamics that are are going on here in this letter. So that got me to thinking as I read over these words, knowing already some of where the Apostle Paul was heading in this book, I began to come to these words and and ask a different question. And, And one of the things that I noticed is I began to analyze these words in view of the context, which I already knew because I've leaped forward, is it feels like to me, that these opening words of 1 Timothy strike a, a profound motivational tone. A motivational tone. And that tone that uh, the Apostle strikes here is a tone by which the Apostle Paul seeks to raise up Timothy to fight. There is a very militant tone that runs throughout 1 Timothy, and it begins right here, and what the Apostle Paul is seeking to do as he opens this letter with these words to Timothy is to motivate him to mission. And it's not an evangelical mission. No, it's a, it's a polemical mission. It's a martial mission. It is actually a mission to stand firm and fight. Fight what? To fight everything that's false. You can already see that in verse 3 as he reminds him of, of his mission, which is to instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines. That is sort of like a heading over everything else that is unfolded in this great work because it places the entire tone of the Apostle Paul here in 1 Timothy on a martial footing. 
This is about the church militant and how it is called to take up a firm stand for Christ and for his truth and to resist everything that seeks to oppose itself against Christ and his church by firmness and resolve and exposing and rooting it out. That's how we want to approach these verses. And we do, we begin to see here that Paul provides for us some essential elements to be a kind of people of God who stand firm in mission. That's the theme of our text, and that's what I want to pursue with you this morning, is standing firm in mission. And that mission is clear. It is a mission of opposition. And we see as we examine the text from that perspective, at least four things that are essential to carrying it out. Number one, warrant. Number two, identity. Number three, strength. And number four, compelling, clear sense of mission. So we think about these things, and first of all, we begin by notice warrant, or the authoritative warrant. And we see that authoritative warrant in the very way the Apostle Paul introduces himself in in verse 1. He describes himself here, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now the heart of what he wants to see here is that he is Paul, apostle of Christ. He is Paul. He's the man that we first met as Saul. But now he's using his Roman pen name. And you'll remember when we first met Paul, he was Saul, and he was he was breathing out murderous threats against the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, and he was persecuting the people of God. And we're going to read more about that when we skip down into verse 12 and following, where Paul refers to his, his past life and his great misdeeds. But that's in the backdrop here as we're thinking about this man who addresses himself as Paul, who was once Saul, who now is that great apostle to the Gentiles. But the thing that he wants to clarify here to Timothy is the authority of this man. Now, Paul, Timothy knows Paul. He's known him for years. But you see, the way he rolls out his self-description and self-identification here is a way to put that name on the firmest granite-like footing and foundation as possible. So he calls himself Paul, Apostle of Jesus Christ. And of course, we've seen this term apostle many times. We've explained what it means. We've said that one way you understand the word apostle is not look up the name in the dictionary. Because the word apostle in Greek simply means a sent one or a messenger. And if you don't understand the concept of apostle in the context of Scripture, you get the chaos and confusion which prevails in a Pentecostal wing of the church today where everybody's an apostle. Because they found in the dictionary it means sent. So we're all sent. And then chaos and confusion reigns about the authority of divine revelation and, and new words from God. No, that's, that's not what apostle means in the Bible. What an apostle means in the Bible is grounded in a Jewish term called shaliach. A shaliach. And by definition, a shaliach is a representative of somebody else, a legal representative of somebody else. In fact, the Jews would say, a shaliach is the man himself. So we have an example of this idea of shaliach in Matthew 10, verse 40. Jesus doesn't use the word, but he uses the concept because he says, he who receives you receives me. You see, the authority of the preached word of the disciples of Jesus Christ was that he made them his special envoys and representative. He made them his shaliach. Which means that when they spoke, Christ was speaking. And you begin to look at the New Testament, you realize there's criteria and qualifications for who could be within them. It's only historically limited to 13 people. One lost the office because of Jude, right? And then Paul was added later because he directly encountered Christ and was called by him. But the point of it is to say here that when we come across apostle, we are coming across a narrow private club of people, aren't we? 
It's just a very unique set of people. And one of the reasons why it is so narrow and the circle is drawn so tightly is because Christ chose only to speak through them when he began to reveal the substance of the new covenant. Well, here the Apostle Paul, as he addresses Timothy, is placing himself in that narrow club and cadre of apostles. And he adds to that of Christ Jesus or of Jesus Christ. And the key to to grasping out the authority of this is the preposition of. Because the preposition of speaks both of, of origin and mediation. So to say that he is an apostle of Christ, first of all, says that the origin of his apostleship comes directly from Christ. See that? It comes directly from Christ. The origin is not from the church. It is not from self-appointment. It is not flowing from the apostles' spirituality or theological acumen or knowledge of the Scriptures. His apostleship flows directly from Christ, seated at the right hand of God. The origin of it is Christocentric, and the mediation of it is Christocentric as well. This is one of the points that the apostle labored to defend and promote when he wrote the book of Galatians. He said there, the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man, for I neither received it from man, nor as I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. The heart of the Apostle Paul's argument to the Galatians is the non-human origin of his gospel. You see, the false teachers, the Judaizers in Galatia, were teaching a gospel of faith plus works, which was neither law or gospel, it was gospel. And it came from their own origin and authority. And the Apostle Paul says, no, there's only one gospel, and that gospel is God's gospel. And that gospel was the gospel he received by revelation of Jesus Christ. He didn't receive it from a man. It didn't come through a man. It wasn't from the church. It wasn't from the apostles. It was directly from Christ. And to argue that is to argue the same thing that we're saying here. This is about mediation. Not just that the origin of the apostleship comes from Christ, but the very mediation of the apostleship comes from Christ. No one laid hands on the apostle Paul to make him an apostle. Christ did. That's what made him so unique. Here he is. One who is from Christ and through Christ. And now he's speaking about Christ and his commands to Timothy, a disciple of Christ. You see, by shooting out of the gate in 1 Timothy with these words, Paul, apostle of Jesus Christ, he's already setting the tone for this book and he's he's putting the false teacher's a notice that whatever instructions he lays before Timothy here in this book, well, he's doing it to take a shot at them. He would shut their mouths and stop their false activity because it doesn't flow from Christ. But he doesn't just add that, he, he adds to it. According to the commandment of God our Savior, and of Jesus Christ our hope. And so now he adds to this idea of him receiving the apostleship from Christ, that it was a commandment. It is an order, it is a divine directive. It, it, it is something that bears supreme authority. He says, he has received it from God the Father. Or rather, he says, God our Savior, which is good as saying God our Father, because clearly... The Father is being distinguished from the Son who follows in the rest of the clause following the conjunction and of Christ Jesus who is our hope. So clearly what's in view here is the Apostle Paul distinguishing the Father from the Son. And the first thing he's saying here is he has been made Apostle of Jesus Christ according to the commandment of the Father. 
And when he says it that way, he's saying something that is a bit unique in the New Testament. Because if you were to look at all of the uses of Savior across the New Testament, what you would generally find is that it's applied to Jesus Christ. But you know here, by applying the term to the Father at this point, calling God the Father, the Savior, what is he doing but saying here that the origin and the fountain and foundation of our salvation flows from the Father? Remember, the New Testament describes it like this, that God so loves the world that he gives his only begotten Son. That it was the love of God that moved him to sin, the Son, for our redemption. And so here, what is he doing but striking the note and highlighting the fact that our redemption is a Trinitarian one from the Father, through the Son, by the Spirit. And so he says here, his apostleship is according to God our Savior, and then of Jesus Christ. And, and that qualifier is, is just full of a, of a trumpet blast of hope, isn't it? Because what is the hope? The, the hope of Jesus Christ isn't, isn't like a Hallmark card wish. The hope of Jesus Christ is definite and specific in Scripture, and that hope is nothing less than the bodily return of Christ at the end of the age, by which the bodily resurrection of the dead is generated. Remember in 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul says, if Christ isn't raised, our faith and our preaching is in vain, and we are of all men most miserable. And then he goes on to talk about how the resurrection is going to come. And he says that it's, it's Christ the firstfruits. And he draws that Old Testament metaphor, which is about uh, a thing that, that certifies and seals and, and, and designates a down payment. Just as surely as the beginning of the harvest comes in, so will the whole of the harvest. It, it is a, is a certification the deal is done before it even occurs. And so Paul takes that term and he applies it to Jesus Christ. And he calls him our hope. But, but people have got this. This is the hope which Christ provides. The hope of Jesus Christ is, is the fact that because he rose from the dead, because he triumphed over the grave, because he was raised in the very flesh in which he was crucified, it means that all of us will be raised bodily. And some to the hope of eternal life, and some to eternal condemnation. But our hope this morning is this hope, a firm hope, a certain hope, a sure hope. Paul brings that in here. I can't help but believe this has to connect to something he wants to say to Timothy. There are some in the church, Hymenaeus and Alexander, who are saying the resurrection of the body is past. Maybe that's what's in view here. Or maybe it's just a way to motivate Timothy. The things that you're laboring for are not temporary. Maybe it has something to do with that. The way we conduct ourselves in the house of God in the church bears upon eternal matters. Maybe that's what's part of it. But, but we can't miss this idea here. As the Apostle Paul addresses Timothy, it feels like he wheels out the heaviest of artillery. After all, this is a letter from one friend to the other. You might be excused this morning for wondering why in writing to his friend he describes himself as Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus according the commandment of God our Savior and of Jesus Christ who is our hope. Feels heavy, huh? It would be like me sending you an email to remind you of a church meeting and say, Pastor John Sautel the Reformed Pres of, of All Saints Reformed Presbyterian Church authorized and set apart and ordained by the Reformed Presbyterian Church of North America. By the way, the meeting starts at 11 a.m. You see, it's overkill. 
And this is why some people who put unholy hands on Scripture have said, this could not have been written by the Apostle Paul because he writes to him as some who's unacquainted with him. And so there's an entire uh, set of New Testament scholarship which sadly sometimes works its way into evangelical commentators today. To say that it's very clear that whoever wrote this letter didn't even know who Timothy was because of the way he introduces himself. This must be Deuterosol. And don't clutter your mind with all the garbage of people who speculate and make no sense and write journal articles as supposedly wise and educated people. The point of it is to say that everything that the Apostle Paul is saying here feels like a lot to say if you're just writing a friend. And it seems to me the answer lies in the fact that he's not just writing a friend. The answer lies in the fact that he is writing to a disciple and to somebody who's under authority of Christ and he's saying to him, you have a mission to fulfill. And you need to fill, you need to sense the full weight of that. And so he's going to tell Timothy he has to remain in Ephesus. He's going to tell him later he's got to fight the good fight. He's going to command him later in chapter 4 to prescribe and teach these things. He's going to conclude the letter by saying to guard. But you see here, all of this is designed to certify what follows. We've made the point already that as Timothy reads this letter, the church is on his shoulder and looking over. And that was always the design of this, and we know that because the Apostle Paul, when he concludes the letter, says, Grace to you all too. He knows the church is looking over his shoulder and reading. And he knows that within the group of people who are looking over the shoulder of Timothy are those stubborn, rebellious, hard-hearted, false teachers. And he's saying that whatever Timothy does to resist them and withstand them and to oppose them and to rebuke them and to thwart them, it flows not from Timothy. It flows from whom? Not Paul. But Christ. You see, the, the reason for stressing the apostolic origin and mediation of his apostleship through Christ is to say that everything that flows from his pen comes not from Paul, but from Christ. And then he traces the origin of that apostleship back into the Father and the Son who is the hope. What is the point here? I said we are approaching these verses to say, obviously, it feels like there's a very motivational tone struck here. And by viewing it through that lens, what we're saying is, what elements are we to take then from that tone which teach us about our calling to stand firm as believers? Paul is including in here things that we need to be persuaded of and sure of in order to take up our charge to stand firm. And one of the things that seems to be implied here in the very form of address to Timothy is the Apostle Paul seems to understand that no one will enthusiastically engage in their duty if they don't believe they have the authority to carry it out. You see, you don't just show up at work and start taking on every project that's there in the building, right? You don't go punch your time card and then uh, walk into the manager's office and kick your feet up on the deck, uh, the desk and start running the operation. Just because you work there doesn't mean you run the place. You see, no one really engages in duty until they believe that they have the authority and the warrant to do precisely what's in the job description. And that's exactly what Paul is trying to communicate to Timothy as he reminds him of his office and calling. Everything that he has communicated to him before and which he now communicates to him through this letter is from Christ. And because it's from Christ, he can stand firm in his calling. If you take nothing else from this message this morning, you must begin here. Your only authority flows from Christ. 
But putting it very positively, you have authority. You have authority from Christ to stand firm. In fact, you have nothing less than that to do. And this is where the church is going badly today. And where it's going uh, very wrongly. It, it, is it so afraid of being offensive and, and bothering somebody? It feels like everybody's sitting around sweating and blushing and, and wondering with sweaty palms whether they, they can actually stand and be firm. Well, the reason is because it doesn't have a sense of its authority. Once the church is aware of its authority, it will have firmness and resolve. We don't have an option. Our call is to stand firm. Yes, we do it with winsomeness. Yes, we do it in love. Yes, we do it with wisdom. But we do it all that time with steel in our resolve and in our spine. Authority of warrant. The second thing we see here as we move past the starting point of duty, which is warrant, is internalized identity. He writes to him as Timothy, and he adds to it, my true child, Timothy. Timothy knows his name, but when we read Timothy, we begin to think about what Timothy represents. And one of the things that Timothy represents is he's a disciple. We know that because Acts 16.1 is the first place we are introduced to him. And there we are told that he was a disciple in Lystra. As you move on to the next verse, in verse 2, we are told there that he was well spoken of, which means he had a great reputation, which was confirmed by everybody in the region, in Lystra and Iconium. He was a man with certified character. But here the apostle turns away from talking to us about Timothy to talking to Timothy about Timothy. Notice he says, my true child. He's not giving us an um, encyclopedia entry on Timothy. No, this is very direct language here. As he, as he whispers now into the ear, he says, Timothy, I need you to know something about who you are. You are my true child in faith. One of the things that Paul, I believe, is seeking to communicate here is that Timothy is a genuine, spiritually legitimate child of God. He's a true child. He has been born from above. Yes, uh, he learned the faith as he was bounced on, on his mother's knee. We know that. His dad didn't care at all. Dad was a Greek. But mama and grandmother uh, whispered the word into his ear and they sang psalms to him and they catechized him in the faith. And, and then when he heard the Apostle Paul preach that Jesus Christ was the fulfillment of all of the promises and the law and the prophets, Timothy was quickened into life. And Paul is saying here, Timothy, your conversion experience is genuine and true and valid. You're a real believer. And that's manifested in his life. Listen to how Paul speaks of Timothy, which sort of uh, captures what he's saying here. He says this about him to the Philippians. He says he was planning to send him the Philippians to serve while Paul was absent. He says, no one else is of kindred spirit who would be more genuinely concerned about your welfare than Timothy. He is a man of proven worth. He serves in the furthering of the gospel with me like a child serving his father. See, when you read this language of true son, the apostle says, I have observed in you the hallmarks which manifest the genuineness of your conversion, so he adds in the phrase here, in the faith, or in faith. And there's a little debate about what's meant. Is it Christian faith? Is he aligned with that deposit of teachings which constitutes Christianity? Or is it about this subjective sense and awareness of faith and, and directing it to Christ and, and trusting in Him? And I think the better argument is on the side that this is about a genuine exercise of faith. So what Paul is identifying here as he reaches out to Timothy is me and you, we share the same conviction, the same hope who is Christ, the same Savior who is Jesus. 
These are powerful, personal words. The first felt formal and stiff. But now he he drops the formality and he speaks in the greatest tones of warmth and he says, Timothy, you are true. Why does he need that? And the answer is because of who Timothy is. He's timid. His heart can, can swell with the burdens of ministry. He, he has this capacity to, to get so worked up by, by people misbehaving that, that he just wants to go sit on a rock somewhere and get away from it all. In fact, at times he can get so discouraged that the Apostle Paul says, he's let his flame fall to an ember. You see, Timothy's an awful lot like us. You give us mountainous opponents, and you leave us isolated and alone, our hearts will falter. And we'll begin to ask all kinds of questions we don't need to. I don't know if you've ever been that way before, but it's lonely sometimes. It's you. It's your convictions. It's the place in which they must be exercised. And you feel like nobody around you shares anything like you believe. And there's that gnawing question that emerges. What's the point? It's just me. That's the sense that I think we need to read this through. And as we hear Paul speak into the ears of Timothy, my true child in faith, he's saying, Timothy, lay hold of your identity. Ask yourself this morning, who fights? Who fights? As far as I can tell, only somebody who has a cause or has a sense of cause, right? Most people don't just fight for no reason. Most people don't just stand firm for no reason. People need a mission. People need a purpose. People need an identity. They need to understand why they're doing it. And if I don't have a personal investment and stake and claim in it, what's the point, especially when it gets tough? And so what is he doing here as he addresses him, Timothy, my true child in the faith? He's saying, Timothy, embrace your identity in Christ. You're a true believer. You are a true child of God. You have been born from above. You have genuinely tasted and experienced grace. You see, a casual Christian won't fight. A moderate Christian won't fight. A believer in name only won't fight. And that might just tell us why we're so alone. But you see, the kind of person who fights is the kind of person who has a real and genuine faith and has a real identity. People of God, you need to be this morning encouraged by these words of Paul to Timothy because they're to you. If you have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are a true child in the faith. If you have cast everything onto the blood of Jesus Christ, and you said, that is my hope and salvation, you are a true child in the faith. And because you are a true child in the faith, that means that you stand under Christ as King and Lord and He has given you something to do. We all don't have the same stake. We don't all have exactly the same role. But we all have the same calling. That's to occupy our place until Jesus Christ comes. To stand firm in the faith. To not waver. And the way you do that is by reaching down to the depths and saying, this is who I am. And if that's not you this morning, you need to ask why. Why isn't it true of you that you are a true child in the faith? 
You see, the call of the gospel is to everyone who believes. And the hope set before everybody who believes is eternal life. And the full pardon and forgiveness of their sins. No one is supposed to reject this. All who are called should hear it and say, yes, I believe. You see, in calling the church to action and affirm this, the Apostle Paul grounds each and every one of us here this morning right before the cross and says, if that's what you believe in, this is who you're called to be. The next thing here is about spiritual strength. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Each one of these terms is the favorite term of every believer, right? You hear grace, you say, yeah, that's my favorite term in the Bible. Then you hear mercy, and that's the best term in the Bible. And you hear peace, and that's, that's, because they're all great. Each one of them captures something of of the wonder of the New Testament concept of, of salvation and redemption. Obviously, grace is about every single spiritual blessing which we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's about the forgiveness of sins through the shed blood of, of Christ. It is about the wrath of God for our, for our sins being satisfied on the cross. It's about being liberated from the tyranny and, and the corruption and the weight and, and the misery of sin. It's about having the righteousness of Christ imputed to our account. It's, it's, a, it's this massive concept. And, and the thing that, that we do is we, we tend to pack everything into it, and, and that's just fine. But the one thing we shouldn't miss when we think about this concept of grace is it's entirely undeserved. Entirely undeserved. In fact, the Reformed like to talk about it as demerit. Demerit. See, that says more than than. You didn't earn it. It says you gave it away. You gave it away. And you were to be blamed, and yet in spite of all of that, God shows us this astonishing grace. But then he adds to that mercy, and it's very interesting to think about the position of mercy in the flow of the salutation here. Because biblically speaking, what comes first? Grace or mercy? And the answer is mercy. The reason is because mercy is divine pity. Mercy is what moves the Father to save you. Mercy is what is what engages God as he sees you in the shipwreck, in the ruin of your life, in the filth of all of your sin, in the bondage to all of your corruption and miseries, in all of your weakness and your inability to respond, and you're drowning in the depths of divine wrath. And what God does is is he is moved to pity. To save you. It's the source of why we have grace. And so he hits, first of all, with this massive word of grace. Everything we can think of this wonderful. And then he adds to it mercy, which tells us why he has it. And then he rounds it off with peace, which describes this wonderful state relationship which we have with God. We could say this is really the fruit of all of that work, right? Romans 5.1, the great pivot verse in, in, in the book of Romans, says, uh, therefore we are justified by faith. Uh, we have peace with God. What stands behind that? Is that God was angry. And He was our enemy. But that relationship has been restored through the obedience of Jesus Christ to the law and the obedience of Christ at the cross. And the result is, my relationship with God is on rock-solid footing. It's restored. Even in the worst day of your life, when you are most aware of the worst sin you've ever committed, you are entitled to know you are at peace 
with God. And that's not a feeling. In fact, you won't even feel it. You'll feel something very different. But it is entitled. It's an entitlement because what it says is that God, for the sake of Christ's blood, is no longer an enemy. That relationship is solid. That means then that it's transformative to me too. It changes me. And then it spills out from me to the relationships all around me. And it begins to take on this idea of just wholeness of blessing. Of a life being rebuilt by, by the hand of God. So that which is ruined is now being, is, is in a gigantic restoration and repair project. All of this is what Paul now communicates to Timothy. He's just affirmed his status as a true son and then he reminds him, what is it that is his? And it's this massive, massive weight of spiritual blessing. Why does he do it? Well, we've already established he's not writing a Hallmark card. So, he doesn't have to say this. He doesn't have to say this. So, why is he doing it? The answer is it seems to be a part of the address to Timothy in his mission. I got to thinking about this as I was wondering, why is this said here? It doesn't need to be. This is a letter between friends. I know it's written under the Holy Spirit, inspiration of the Holy Spirit. I get that. But why is this included here? I began to think about and reflect upon what is it that was so necessary about including this. And then I remembered that as the Apostle Paul finishes that great book of Ephesians, and he pivots towards the, the, um, the finish line, he ends that book with what? An exposition of spiritual warfare, right? And what is the very first thing he says about spiritual warfare? You learn this verse on your mother's knee. Be strong in the Lord and the power of His might. What is Timothy to do here? He is to engage in the highest level of spiritual warfare. He is called to stand firm and oppose and rebuke and muck the church out. That's spiritual warfare. And so at the outset, he not only highlights the warrant of his calling, he not only highlights the identity of who he is, he now communicates to him that which is essential to receive and to internalize and to embrace, which is that he needs the strength of God. This is not a wish. There's a, there's a good segment of scholarship that says this is a proclamation. There's no verb here. You'll notice that. Grace, mercy, and peace. It is a proclamation designed to be fuel and strength for His calling. That's for us. Take those words. They are your words, people of God. Grace to you. Peace to you. Mercy to you. This is your hope. This is your help. This is how you stand. It's in Christ and His firmness and His strength. Finally, here we have clear and compelling sense of mission. And that's verse 3. As I worked through these verses, I wondered where I would stop in my preparation and exposition because verse 3 leads to verse 4, which leads to verse 5, which leads to verse 6, which leads to verse 7, which leads to verse 8. And I began to see that this feels very inter intertwined. And then I said, why not just stop here with mission? We can always come back and explain what, what this is about and, and talk through the theological problems. But if you boil it down and say, what is the bottom line of verse 3? The bottom line of verse 3 is mission. I urged you to remain. 
so that you would instruct certain men not to teach. This is mission. It's urgent. Um, yeah, the word urged is used here. Um, I, I, I get that. Um, but I take urgency from a different idea. I take urgency from what is not expressed. He moves from a declaration of grace to what? Mission. What is so typical of the Pauline letter is that he moves from salutation to thanksgiving. But he doesn't here. He jumps straight into the heart of the matter. That's the thing that we are to notice here. That there is urgency in the address. And then second, we have um, affirmation or it is affirmative. He says here, um, I urged you. And the word here is persuasion. It is to come alongside somebody and, and to lay out for them what you want of them and then to draw on every resource you can in the exchange and the context and the relationship to get them to see it like you do so that they embrace the call and commit to the act. And so here it is. He says, I'm urging you. He's done it before. Obviously, this is a past tense verb, but by repeating it here, we're picking up on the fact the apostle is still urging him. This is still a matter of persuasion. This is still something that Timothy absolutely has to wake up every day committing himself to. And the reason is because it's confrontational. Notice here, I urged you to remain in Ephesus so that you would instruct. Oh, it's not instruct. It's command. It is command. It is to give orders. It is to direct. It is to, it is to, it, it, it is to require something with sternness. You see, that's why he needs to keep buying into this mission on a daily basis is because of the nature of the mission. It is about eyeball to eyeball, white to white in our eyes, looking at somebody and confronting them and telling them in the name of Christ, they must stop. And so he uses a powerful term here. You must command them not to teach. Calvin says the word denotes power. And he wishes to arm him with power. And who is he to instruct? Well, certain men who teach strange doctrines. And this is the necessity of the mission. Because it tells us what is actually happening. They are teaching strange doctrines and you know the word yourself probably at this point. It's heterodidaske, and it means to teach that which is other. And the whole theology of the other, well, it comes, as we've already noted, from Galatians chapter 1, where the Apostle Paul says, this is my gospel, this is Christ's gospel, this is God's gospel, this is the one gospel, this is true gospel, and any other gospel is what? Is accursed. So when something is in the category of other than the message received, it is false. And it's not just false. It's spiritually dangerous and corruptive and corrosive to the church. And so the Apostle Paul says to Timothy, there are people right under your nose who are bringing in that which is the other. Promoting the other. Whispering about the other. Talking up the other. Whether it's another way to pray, another way to worship, another way to govern the church, another way to live the Christian life, another law, maybe even another Christ, another hope, another salvation, whatever it is. And we'll talk about it some more as we unfold what follows in the context here. The fact of the matter is, the necessity of the mission is on account of the fact that the other is spreading. That which does not flow from Christ, that which isn't true, it doesn't come from the Word of God. And so Timothy, he is to do what? Remain. 
and command. That's mission. That's the call of Timothy to remain and to confront. He is to stand firm in his office and calling. We saw last time as we ended the exposition of chapter 3 there, and that great regulative principle that governs the life of the church, that it is uh, the pillar in support of the truth. That's Paul's grand vision, you could say in one sense, for the church of Jesus Christ, that it is the pillar and it is the support. It holds high and it holds firm the truth. But as we begin to take in what the Apostle says here to Timothy in chapter 1, you realize there's something else. There's not just a trowel. There's a sword. See, the church cannot reduce its mission to simply holding up and holding firm. At the same time, it keeps a sword in its hand. And it fights back. And so what Timothy is being called to do here is to make the firm stand against error and opposition and everything that exalts itself against Christ and doesn't take itself from Scripture. And he is to fight it. And that is the calling of the church in every single generation. So what do we learn here? We learn here what it means to stand firm and how to do it. And what we learn here is that this message is given to people like Timothy, which means it's given to people like us. Timid, prone to discouragement, all alone, facing down ravenous wolves whose only goal is to destroy the church of Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul, knowing what stands before Timothy, knowing what stands before us, lays out the foundation for us and says, here's how you do it. Here's how you take up that mission and here's how you stand firm in it. You understand your warrant. You understand your warrant. You understand your identity. True child of God. You understand the strength that it comes from the grace, mercy, and peace of God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And you understand the mission. Stand firm. As we take those things and we equip ourselves with those things, by the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit, we'll be made immovable and standing firm.